0: Well, if you came for an uplifting sermon today, you can see by the title, it might not be so. What do you think? Unhappy business. unhappy business. Unhappy business. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Ecclesiastes, chapter number one. Now, let's take a reading from verses 12 to 18, Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1, verses 12 to 18. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over, over me. I'm sorry. Surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great expectation. I mean, <laughs> Great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's make a prayer together. Father, we come before you now and I come before you and ask you to help me give this sermon. And help me to, to, do, to do right by it. I pray in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, have you heard the little adage, you're working on something, you have some problem, and somebody will pipe up and say, well, you know, in a perfect world, have you heard that kind of that little slogan? In a perfect world, it would be this. But we all know that the world that we live in is not perfect, and we accept that. And we acknowledge that things in our world are not perfect, but it used to be. You know, we have a tendency to memorialize the past and say, if we could just get back to the good old days, man, everything would be great. You know, Valerie's uh, mom would always talk about growing up in the 50s like they were the greatest time on earth. Well, I'll tell you what, I would have I hated to have grown up in the 50s because Nintendo didn't come out until about 1988. <laughs> we, we love the past, but if you really want to get into the good old days, the good past, when the world was perfect, You have to go back further than the 1950s. you got to go back further than the 19th century. You have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. To find a perfect world, you have to go back beyond the centuries to that place. When God made Adam and Eve, and the world and the people in it were both perfect, and their business, their occupation then was a happy business. When God made Adam and Eve, He placed them in the Garden of Eden. It means paradise. And He didn't leave them there just to fish and count daisies and do other stuff. He left them behind there to dress the garden and to keep the garden. He gave them something to do. He gave them an occupation to carry out. But we all know that that happy time came to an end. It ended because they decided That Satan was right because Satan said, God is keeping you down. God is suppressing you. And they said, you know, Satan, we think you're right. And so they believed Satan, disbelieved God. And the result is, ever since then, we have been occupied with unhappy business. Not just unhappy business, but prolonged and significant unhappiness. And that unhappiness is by design. Because God, in His providential plan for the ages, has made it so that this world is tensed with, tainted with, unhappiness. Because it is the unhappiness of our business, the unhappiness of our lives, that causes us to look up. I read in your hearing Psalms 142. I chose that psalm this morning, about 10 minutes before I left the house. I didn't connect it to this sermon until just now. But in that prayer of David, where David is living in a cave, he's on the run from King Saul, he's in a very bad way, and he cries out to God. And in that prayer, we learn some delicious truths. It is unhappiness. It is misery that causes us to look up. We don't usually look up when things are going great, but we look up when things are going poorly. Now, our God, he gave to Adam and Eve when he made them, he gave them one another, which is a blessing. Amen? Amen. Aren't you glad to have other people in your life? Well, most of the time we are, aren't we? (laughs) God gave mankind one another, but he also gave them dominion over the earth. Now, that dominion over the earth is something that we still possess. But the earth that we have dominion over or power over, the earth itself resists us in the assertion of our dominance. This seems to be part of the curse where God said to Adam and Eve, poetically I think he said this, that whatever you try to do, the earth will resist you. If you try to plant crops or flowers or good things, the earth will produce what in response to you? weeds and thorns. So the earth over which we have dominion or authority, it resists us in our efforts to assert our dominion. And that causes us to have some difficulties. If you ever get around to reading Kipling's Jungle Books, which are delicious reading and I wish I wish everybody would read them, they're so good. Kipling describes there a palace that has been swallowed up by the jungle. And he describes how the people they cut back the jungle to build a city and to build a palace, but they had to constantly be cutting it back, constantly cutting it back because the jungle always is encroaching, always trying to reclaim what it possessed, always at it. That cycle is always there, and we've all seen the similar kinds of things. Have you ever uh, I cut a lady's grass over across the river where all the bad people live? and uh her little her little driveway has you know cracks in it or seams where the grass grows through and uh i i thought her driveway was pretty small so one day i was messing around over there and i was kicking at the grass and and got my weed eater out and i was trying to make an edge you know make it look sharp and uh i realized her driveway is quite wide But the grass has just been creeping and creeping and creeping. And I guess the grass must have been dragging dirt with it. Because it's just, it never ends. It just gets narrower and narrower. Now, we've all seen that kind of thing. We live here in northern Michigan. And we're kept out of heaven by the Straits of Mackinac, right? (laughs) But there, across the Straits of Mackinac, is this highway in the sky called the Mackinac Bridge. What a, what a Herculean example of human effort and ingenuity. The bridge, even though we've stuck it there, the natural world still fights against the bridge because the bridge has to be constantly maintained and watched over and protected. We've crossed the water, but the wind still blows across there. It wasn't too long ago. Somebody with a little truck And I think a snowmobile trailer was coming across the bridge, and the wind got it and flipped that little trailer over and shut down the bridge. I played basketball with a guy who comes down from St. Ignace to play basketball, and sometimes after basketball, he can't go back to St. Ignace because the bridge has been closed because of wind, fog, or in the spring, ice falling off those wires. I mean, nature itself, the world says, oh, yeah, you guys built a bridge, well, I'm going to make that bridge mighty inconvenient sometimes. I took two of, two of my daughters up there. I guess I have, two, I have two daughters at the house now. I took two, the girls up there one time to see the doctor in St. Ignace. And we went to McDonald's because when you're sick, you have to have the healing stuff. You know what I'm saying? I had to have some of those golden fries and coffee. And so we went, to, we went to the doctor, went to McDonald's. We're coming back, and we're stuck. We can't get across the bridge. And traffic was backed way up, and I thought, man, how, how are we going to get home? There's no other way. And, va- and Leslie, she said, we could go to Chicago. <laughs> I guess she wasn't that sick. <laughs> but, you know, we, we, a man asserts his power, but the world we live in pushes back against it. And this is the unhappy thing that we find. Even though man has wisdom, and dominion over the earth, there are some things that we just cannot fix. This is the unhappy business of man. We have to learn and we have to accept the fact that there are some things that cannot be changed. It's a little proverb in verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. There are things that you just can't do anything about. Even though we have incredible knowledge, incredible abilities, God has reminded us that we are not omnipotent. Potent? Yes, we are. Omnipotent? No, we are not. So how do we deal with these things we can't change? Well, we have to rest in the purpose and plan of God. There are things that God lets us change, and there are things that God is not going to let us change. And the things that God will not let us change, we have to accept. Now, I don't know about you. I don't care for that every time. Sometimes it doesn't bother me. Sometimes it bothers me quite a bit. We have to learn to rest in God. A pastor from outside Washington, D.C., a man named Lloyd Sprinkle, Lloyd's with the Lord now, he said in my hearing in 2014 in a sermon, he said that we we should make providence. We should make the providence of God our bed at night, but not our Bible. And what he was saying is that we need to learn to rest in God's purpose and God's plan for the world. The world's in such turmoil, isn't it? Just crazy things going on, going on all the time. J. Frank Norris said like this. He said, we should work 12 hours a day and then spend 12 hours at night with our toes turned towards heaven and leave the world in God's hands. Because God is working in this world. God has a plan. You have to rest in God's providential purposes and arrangement for your life. My friends, I said this to you. I live this myself every day, is that what's going on in my life, both good and bad, are a part of God's plan for my life. That's how he's making me into what he wants me to be. There are things that I would change in a heartbeat if I could, but I can't change them. So I have to trust God with them and say, Lord, I don't know the why of this exactly, but I'm going to trust you with this, learning to rest in the plan of God for your life is something that you can only really profitably do if you're a Christian. Now we have these little, there are things in the Bible that are for Christians only. Like going to heaven, only for Christians. The abiding, indwelling, comforting presence of the Holy Spirit, only for Christians. Knowledge true knowledge of the word of god only for christians membership in a local church only for, i mean the list goes on and on of these things now a christian can be assured that whatever is going on in their life good or bad is a part of god's good plan for their life and that's romans 8:28 paul says we know that all things Work together for good. But it's only to those who love God. If you love God, you trust God. Now my question to you is, well, there's a few questions I'll ask you today. Do you love God? Do you love him? Does God love you? If both of those things are true, then you can and ought to trust God. You should trust him because he does love you. If someone loves you, you can expect them to do good by you. And you can trust that God loves you. Now Solomon, our passage, is a man of inquiry. And he decides he's going to try to learn some things. He's going to try to know more than he knows. But what he finds out is in the last bit of chapter 1. Here's what he perceives. It's a striving after wind. Verse eighteen: For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. He he learns that the more he learns, the more depresso so in his spirito he becomes. Because ignorance is what knowledge is a burden. Knowledge is a burden. Now, when I was a kid, I grew up with wonderful role models in my life have my dad, my grandpa, and John Wayne. And so and so I, I don't if you're if you're in your forties, if you're in your forties, did you see a lot of John Wayne when you were a kid? Now, here's what I would like to point out is I think that my father actually raised me about twenty years back. <laughs> because at our house my grandma had you know back in the day when your grandparents had cable but their kids didn't because Cable costs money, and their kids didn't have any money. So my grandma, she had a VCR. And, and, and during different times of the year on the Turner Broadcasting uh, Network, TBS, Turner, Turner Broadcasting Station, they would have like Duke Week. And all week long, they would show two John Wayne movies every night. On well, my grandma, she would hook up that VCR, and she'd record all the John Wayne movies that week. And she, remember you can take your, remember VCR tapes? Can I get a witness? Remember how you could change the speed on them so they could record up to six hours? Well, my grandma, she would record six hours of John Wayne in a whack, and then she did us the solid blessing of mailing them to us. <laughs> and we would watch John Wayne. We'd watch him over and over. I've seen John Wayne put a flag up. Well, he, didn't, he died before he got the flag up. But I saw John Wayne take Iwo Jima I saw John Wayne vanquish the Apaches. I saw John Wayne win the the Civil War. I saw John Wayne go to England and show him how to be a cop (laughs) in Brannigan. I have seen, there were sometimes my dad, I don't know if he had this, if he had the directory of John Wayne films, but he knew which ones were on tape and which ones weren't. And when stores started selling John Wayne movies the full length, man, my dad bought them like crazy. I grew up watching John Wayne. Now, there, remember A&E? A&E. Is A&E still around? Yeah. Yep. Remember A&E biography? And they would have biographies about John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart and Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, which I also saw a lot of Roy Rogers stuff too. But, man, you know, my dad, he loved John Wayne. Because John Wayne, to my dad, typified manhood. Manhood. Patriotism. Honor. Integrity. Dignity. So I grew up with all these little maxims from John Wayne, you know? All these little things. Now, what, what I found out was, is I started reading about John Wayne. Because there's lots of stories about John Wayne, a lot of folklore about him. But the fact of the matter is, Big John was not a very moral person. The biography of his life is so horrible. (laughs) The last biography I read of John Wayne, I had to stop reading it because it was tearing down my hero so much. It just made me sorrowful. It reminded me that John Wayne, his business was what? Acting. Pretending. And it really broke my heart <laughs> when I realized that it was just an act. It was just pretending. It wasn't real. It was just make-believe. All the all these ideals I had lifted up in my mind that he said he supported and kind of went with were connected, were absent. No, it made me sad. I found the same thing to be true about many heroes. But, you know, it kind of reminds us that everybody has weaknesses, you know? Now, this is exactly what Solomon is learning here, is He says that the more he knows, the less he wishes he knew. But why is it that we are, why do we search for knowledge? Why do we begin these inquiries? Well, it's because we are smart enough, most of us, to know we don't have all the answers, right? Right? I mean, just think about how many times this week you said, Google it. Or you have at your phone and said, hey, Siri, and ask a question because we want to know. We want to know these things. Now, we know that we don't know Everything. So we know the truth is out there somewhere. And so we start looking for it. We search for the truth. Now, I've been in one basically one profession for about 20 years, and that's being a pastor. There are all kinds of, of weird little things about being a pastor, about, about the job itself. And I don't know if this is a personality deflect, a character flaw, or if it's the nature of the, of the beast of the business but you're always looking for the secret formula to success. If I could just read the right book, attend the right conference, hear the right sermon, get, find the right model to follow. Shelton Smith said one time in his sermon, he said, if you want to be a successful pastor, there are three things you got to do. You got to study. You got to go soul winning. And you got to go to the hospital to see people. Three things. I thought, oh, those, those, I wrote them down. I've never forgotten them. Those seem to be three very important things. You've got to study, you've got to win souls, you got to go to the hospital and see people. Three pretty good things, right? Just boiled it down. I like those very simple paths to success. Now, I pastored a church in Arkansas, and guess what I did? What was number one? I studied. Number two, I went soul winning. I knocked on doors, talked to people about Jesus. Number three, I went to the hospital, and guess what? They still wanted to fire me. <laughs> because sometimes formulas don't work. Sometimes they work for one person in one place at one time. But we keep on searching for these formulas. I have read tons of books on leadership. I've read John, well, John Maxwell's books on leadership. I've read John MacArthur's book on leadership. Leadership. I've read uh, Albert Moeller's book on leadership. I, I read Colin Powell's book on leadership called It Worked for Me which was very insightful because I thought, you know what? It worked for you, but not for me. <laughs> I read Bill Clinton's biography. He talks about leadership and success in there. My life. You say, well, I wouldn't read that guy's book. Look, you got to think, you gotta, you, if, you're, if you want to succeed, you've got to look everywhere for the tips to win. The tips to win, you've got to look everywhere. So anyway, we know, we know we need some tips. We know we need some success. So we read books on relationships to try to be a better husband. We read books on money, how to make more of it, how to manage what you got. We read books on leadership. Whatever your field is, you try to. I'm going to find some information about this, and we do it in hopes that we will find the special formulas that will give us success. But most of the time, when I've been reading, I read a book called Spiritual Leadership by uh, Paul Chappell. This has probably been 10 years ago or so. And and basically, all of his principles are rip are ripoffs of Stephen Covey's book, Seven Habits of what kind of people? Highly successful. Highly successful people. And so, you know, once you see somebody's ripping somebody else off, what do you do? Quit reading their book and read the book they're ripping off, right? So what I discovered was that in order for me to to have to follow those habits for success, I was going to have to have a complete brain transplant <laughs> because there was nothing in my nature or inclinations that could. T- I felt overwhelmed and depressed by all those things. You know, I just you have to kind of realize I, I just can't do some of these things anyway. Which is what Solomon says here: the more I learned the more depressed I became because I felt my inability to do those things. So Solomon, he looks for the keys. He looks for the keys to success. He looks for the right way to use the wisdom that he has. And in verse number 17, here's what he says. I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So Solomon said, I'm going to try both sides of this. First, he tries wisdom which is the best use of knowledge. And what does he find out? Vexation? Difficulty? Because even if you're the smartest person in the room, that means everybody else is what? (laughs) (laughs) Not quite as smart. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you that story. (laughs) So he says, "I, I, I sought wisdom. And then he says, I tried the other side too madness and folly, which is the worst use of wisdom. He took wisdom and said, I'm going to try to do the the best I can. I'm going to be wise with all that I know. I'm going to be shrewd and sharp. But what did he find? No satisfaction, frustration. So he says, well, I'm just going to try being reckless and wild. And what does he find over there? Dissatisfaction. He tries both sides. And either way he went, he found vexation and sorrow. And this is the unhappy lot of humanity. The unhappy lot of man is that we are smart enough to know the truth is out there. We know the truth is out there somewhere. And so like Fox Mulder, did you guys read Dr. Mulder's dissertation? (laughs) How many of you know who Fox Mulder is? Put your hand up. X-Files choosing to believe, looking for the truth it's out there somewhere. No matter what he no matter what crazy thing he discovers, he keeps on in pursuit of it. It's out there, it's out there, it's out there. We know it's out there. But the problem is, is we tend to look in the wrong place. We look at the world, we find some wisdom. We look to ourselves, we can find some wisdom. But we're not smart enough to bow before God and offer our whole self to Him and say, God, I need you here. The psalmist says in 119 verse 18, Lord, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. What we need to do is to stop searching in the world and in pleasure for the wisdom for the formulas for success and look to God for these things there are things that you can learn that will depress you even in even in God's economy but there are some things and there're some things you cannot change now I want to end this sermon by telling you a lot of wonderful things that you can learn from God you guys want to hear some wonderful things so I'm looking at my clock it's 11.19 I don't know what time we usually finish what time do we usually finish? 12 11.19 (laughs) if it's 12 I got 40 minutes of preaching okay here we go in Luke chapter 1 verse 37 God's word tells us nothing is impossible with God for with God nothing shall be impossible This statement is made in response to Mary saying to the angel, he says, you're going to have a baby. She says, how can I? I have never had sex. I have not known a man. And he says, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. And my friends, if you're going to get yourself a tattoo, get that tattooed on your bicep. With God, nothing shall be impossible. God can do whatever he chooses and purposes to do. Nothing is impossible for God. If he wants to do it, nothing's, nothing's impossible. God doesn't just choose to do the things that he can do, like you and I. You know, you have a task list and you look and go, I can do this and I can do this and I can do this. That's not what God does. God does whatever he chooses to do, even if it is impossible. Even if it's impossible. God can do anything. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 He says that a virgin shall conceive. And this child that's going to be born is going to do something that no one else could ever do. Saves people from their sins. Saves people from your sins. If you're here today and you're a Christian, you've been born again. If you've been born again, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your biggest problem has already been handled. Now, nobody said amen to that, and I'm kind of ticked off about it. (laughs) Because that means that maybe I'm not doing a good job of impressing upon you the glory and the bounty of salvation. We live on this side of the sun, and we think this is all that matters. But this doesn't matter as much as you think it does. How much money you got in the bank does not matter. How many cars you got in the garage doesn't matter. What matters is if your sins are forgiven. If your sins have been forgiven, then you are a child of God. Amen. Heaven's your home. Amen. And because God has done it, it cannot be lost. And God's going to teach that to you as you go along. Everything that you value in this life, you will lose. Except salvation. Amen. Except salvation. Everything you value. You say, well, there are some limits. No, there's not. Everything. Everything. A virgin shall conceive who will save his people. And the child will save people from their sins. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1, 40 weeks later, the Bible says that Jesus was born in Bethlehem as God had said. A virgin will conceive and bring forth a son. He said it. It's impossible. They didn't believe it. It happened. Forty weeks later, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Born in Bethlehem. Now let's switch ahead a couple of gospels. In John chapter three, verse 16, which is a verse that every Christian should really know pretty good. And if there's a preacher out there who can't preach John three sixteen, he should probably uh, find a new job. But the Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, possess, present tense, perfect tense, everlasting life. Everlasting life. Now then you say, well, what does world mean? It's, It's a cool word. The word is cosmos. And this was John's way of telling first century Jews God doesn't just love the Jews. He loves Gentiles too. For God so loved the world that he gave. Gave what he gave Christ. What did he give Christ for? To die, to atone, to be the Lamb, slain, to bear your sins upon his own body. John 3 16, what a great promise. In John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and them that come to me I will never cast out. So my friends, that means if you have come to Christ in faith, calling upon Him, believing in Him, trusting Him as your Savior, He will never cast you out. Even if you are a lousy, rotten Christian. Even if you are a disobedient son and daughter. Even if you never pick up your Bible and read it. Shame on you. Even if you never go to church, shame on you. God does not cast away those who come to him. All that the father gives to me, come to me. And they that come to me, I will never cast out. I was knocking on doors in Vernon, Texas, knocked on a door. This redheaded girl came to the door. She's about my age. I talked to her for a few minutes. She said, I she to go to, it was called Oak Street Church of Christ. She said, I go to Oak Street Church of Christ over there. <clears throat> and I said, well, okay. I said, if you died right now, do you know for sure you're going to go to heaven? She said, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And so I, I told her, she said, yes, I've trusted in Christ as my Savior. I said, well, that means you're saved once and forever. She said, I don't know that the Bible really teaches that. I think I really have to keep up my, keep my end of the deal. I turned to John chapter 6, verse 37, and I read it to her. And I said, what does that sound like? It says. Her eyes filled with tears. She started to bawl right there, talking to me. It looks like, it looks like, it looks like you'll never let me go. Well, I almost became Pentecostal right there. Because I was crying, she was crying. Because that precious, glorious promise Never cast out. John chapter 10, verses 14 to 16, Jesus has this great little story where he says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus has done everything needed to save you. He is your shepherd. He's laid down his life for you. He is a comforter. Later on in John chapter 10, he says, my sheep are gonna be okay because my sheep hear my voice and they follow me and I hold them in my hand. And I and my father are one. There's a little bit in there I left out where Jesus says, no man can pluck them out of my father's hand. No man. Now, I had this old preacher, he said, I don't know if this is the right way to say it or not, but he would say, that means nobody can pluck you out and you can't pluck yourself out. <laughs> in the grip of the Savior. In John chapter fourteen. Jesus said, "Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many—the old Bible said mansions. I kind of like that better because I really have a mansion than a room. How about you? <laughs> are many mansions? I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. And I will come again." and receive you unto myself. Jesus is going to come. He's going to take you to heaven with him. In Romans chapter eight, verses 37 through 39, now this is, I'm going to turn and read this because this is, this is worthy of, it's all worthy of reading, but maybe if I turn to it, you guys will look at it too. Or take your little ink pen and draw a circle around it. This is John eight, 37 through 39. no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure this is romans 8:38 for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If Christ is your Savior, if you believe on Him, nothing can separate you from Him. Nothing can. You'll feel like, you will feel like sometimes that that love has been taken away from me. I've had five kids, which means I've spanked at least five people. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know that when they were receiving the rod of knowledge upon the seat of education, <laughs> that in those moments, they weren't saying, Dad loves me. But I did love them. I love them now. And sometimes in your life, God's going to let things come into your life to chasten you, to get your attention. And you're going to go, he doesn't love me. He does love you. Because the Bible says, every son whom he receives, he chastens. And if you are without chastisement, you are bastards and not sons. God paddles his own kids. Because he loves them. But you'll feel like God doesn't love you sometimes. But he never stops loving you. If your faith is in Christ, his love for you will never, ever. Nothing can separate it. Nothing can separate it. Roman in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 50 to 57, talks about this resurrection glory that's present there. I'm going to read that to you too. 1 Corinthians, actually it's chapter 15, not 10. 1 Corinthians 15 Listen to verses 50 through 57 I think Paul writes this around in the 60s AD which means he's kind of an old codger We don't know exactly how old What age does old codger, codger codgerism start do you think five, five <laughs> Five years older. <laughs> so he's, he's at a point in his life where he, 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 know, he knows he's not what he could be. Listen to what he says. I tell you this, brothers. This is 1 Corinthians 15.50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. Behold. Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And how should we live in light of this knowledge? Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. My friends, this book, this thing called the Bible is filled with knowledge and wisdom. And if you read it, and if you believe it, you'll see sad stuff, and you'll see good stuff. But this book tells us there is coming a day when there will be no more unhappy business. Because... Our eternal work is going to be the unending praise and worship of God as we are with him in heaven. And that will be a happy business. I put down here to go and read parts of Revelation, but I just want to kind of summarize it for you. Is that the book of Revelation, it talks about all these things that are now allowed into the heavenly city. All these different kinds of sins, All these different kinds of attitudes and behaviors, these things are not allowed into the heavenly city. And the reason for that is because all of those things make us unhappy. There's nothing present in the eternal realm that can make you unhappy. You will be eternally happy in your business if you're a Christian. If you're not here and you're if you're not a Christian, you're going to have unhappiness You're going to be unhappy forever. You're going to be unhappy forever. You think you're unhappy now? It's only going to get worse. Because when this life is over, you're not going to go to the place where where it's only happy business. You're going to go to a place where it's very unhappy. Very unhappy. You say, well, I don't like that kind of ultimatum. It's the truth. If you go outside here without a stitch of clothes on today, you're going to freeze your hiney off. <laughs> well, I don't like the restriction of clothes. <laughs> We're really going to hate the restriction of ice. <laughs> I mean, there are some things that are just true. Put your faith in Christ. And there will be an end to your unhappy business. Don't put your faith in Christ. And there won't be any end to it. Now let's pray. Father I've taken your word in hand. And tried to impress upon these my friends. And family and loved ones. The truth of the word. I pray heavenly father that. The Christians here will leave encouraged. And Lord, I want to pray that those who are here and who are not Christians, that they would leave here under the burden of conviction and they would look up to heaven and see the smiling face of a redeemer who says, come unto me, all ye that are weird, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Send the Holy Spirit to whisper into their ear. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I pray these things in the name that's above every name that of Christ our Lord.